going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter this morning. And we're in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. 4, 12. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that should be on page 983. 983. As I mentioned today, we'll be finishing off chapter 4. And then Jeff will be back in 1 Samuel for a couple of weeks before we come back to finish Peter. But I hope you have been challenged and encouraged by this wonderful letter, one of my favorites in the Bible. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, this is the word of the Lord. God's people say, thanks be to God. I wonder if you have seen the news story in recent months about Jessica Bates. She's an Eastern Oregon widow and Christian mother of five who's been looking to adopt two children from the Oregon foster care system. During the application process for adoption, the DHS representative asked her how she would handle a situation if one of the children said they wanted to pursue transgender care. Would Jessica be willing to drive the child to their appointment for the hormone injections? Unsure, Jessica responded that she would love them as her own children, as her own five biological children, and she would care for them and provide them the greatest care, but she could not support that. Uh, the longer story would be she would say that is an unloving thing to do. Well, her adoption was denied by the state of Oregon, and so with the help of the Alliance Defending Freedom, they have filed a lawsuit against the state of Oregon, and it's going before a federal court. Bates and the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, are claiming that Oregon's policy has violated her freedom of religion. A local news station, KGW, reported on the story, and then a few days later, they opened up their phone lines and also their email for people to comment on the story. And while there were a couple who made comments in support of Mrs. Bates, uh, many were far sharper in their critique. Most of the responses, the news commentator said, were like Maria, who wrote in, I am sitting here fuming about that woman and her Christian bigotry. These days, folks bang their Bibles and spew hate. She absolutely should not get foster kids. There's enough hate in this country without poisoning children. Many other examples could be listed of the bigotry found in Jessica Bates's decision. And we can multiply stories for hours. Uh, stories about Christians who are slandered or verbally attacked for holding to the same beliefs that Christians have held for 2,000 years. 
and the God's people since the creation have held that every person has been created in the image of God and they are of immeasurable value. And so we dare not tamper with how God has made them. Well, I wonder, how are you reacting to the news of these types of things? What if I told you that in Bates's case, the federal judge who's been assigned to the case, given her history, it seems likely that this case is going to fail and we'll have to pursue an appeal. How do you feel when you hear these stories? Does your blood pressure rise a bit? Does your pulse quicken? Do your ears redden? Oh, friend, if that is true of you this morning, then today's passage is specifically for you. Because as you've already heard me from reading through these verses, they call us to a very different response than our intuitive, knee-jerk response. See, we hear stories such as these, and we recoil, becoming angered. But Peter has almost the audacity to say, why are you surprised at this fiery trial? And so it is that in mind that we will see Peter is making this argument that will be up on the board, that suffering as Christians is a necessary preparation for our future glory. So rejoice. That's his argument. Suffering as Christians is a necessary preparation for future glory. So rejoice. And we'll walk through this passage under these three points. Suffering as testing, suffering as judgment, and then suffering as God's will. First, suffering as texting. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I mentioned when we started this study that Peter falls into three parts. And the first in 2.11 there, he has this word, beloved, or the NIV translates it, dear friends. Well, here we come to the next, beloved, or dear friends, signaling that Peter has shifted to the third major section of his letter, which will run till the end. And yet, while Peter has shifted to the last section of his letter, he hasn't really changed topics. I mean, you've been with us for the last few weeks. We have talked about suffering every week. At one level, what Peter's going to say in this passage is very repetitive. He even reuses some of the language he's already used. But at another level, he's trying to push us to think on this from a slightly different angle than we already have. But to recap, what Peter has already told us about suffering in this letter, well, back in chapter 1, verse 6, he explained how in the mysterious plan of God, suffering of various trials was necessary, same word used here, for genuineness of their faith to be proved. Uh, he explained that it is the tested, the proven genuineness of faith that redounds to the praise and glory of God. And then in, in chapter 2, he charged his readers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles, which is everybody else out there now, excellent, even in the midst of being slandered, of being abused. He wrote to slaves and masters, husbands and wives, and to everybody, uh, that, that they were to live in such a way that even while suffering, they should be able to honor God with their lives, that the people persecuting them would see their behavior under suffering and honor God. And then last week, we saw how Peter pushed this theme even further. He says that when pressed by the world around us, 
those Gentiles, we must respond gently and with respect. That when we're slandered, our good behavior must be a witness before those who would treat us with contempt. In short, Christ is our example. He was the truly righteous sufferer. And he was slandered and mocked and even put to death for his sins. So we will follow in his pattern. That's what we've heard Peter say already. So why does he bring up suffering again? Maybe you're like me. I started to study this week at the beginning of the week, and I'm like, Peter, come on. Can we stop beating the drum of suffering? The, the horse is dead. It's been kicked and shot and stabbed. Can we move on to the next topic? But I think it would be helpful for us to pause and ask, why? Why will Peter just not let this issue of suffering go? Well, I mean, in part, as any of you who've endured suffering would attest, suffering unmoors us. I mean, it makes us feel as if the world and walls are falling down. Our thoughts race to the worst possible scenario and outcome. We instantly game it out in our minds, and we start anticipating and, and being angered by things that haven't happened or may not ever happen, but we're almost certain that they will. And friends, I would just say this is why the Bible spends so much time on this topic. One of the largest books in the Bible is all about suffering. It's the book of Job. And I don't know the last time you read through the Psalms, but the Psalms are really depressing at times. There's a lot of suffering in the Psalms. See, our natural human reversion to suffering is even more heightened, though, in our modern Western culture. So if Peter thought they need it, let me now take a moment to tell you why we need these reminders and conversations on suffering even more than them. We need to be those who sit and marinate in these things. In his essential book, uh, the late Pastor Tim Keller wrote, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He explained how our contemporary Western culture is actually the worst culture in history for preparing people for grief and pain and loss. As he explains how all humans have this inner compulsion to explain the world, to, to make sense of it. And the earliest cultures, they set suffering within the grand narrative of how they understood the world to be working out. I mean, that's what Job's friends did, right? They tried to explain his suffering within a narrative. Now, God tells us that their friend's narrative was wrong. But simply put, our modern Western world has changed this a little bit because our modern Western world has gotten rid of the grand narrative. It doesn't think in those categories. We're so individualist, we think about today and our needs for now. So Keller writes this, the end result is today we are more shocked and undone by suffering than were our ancestors. You see, in medieval Europe, approximately one of every five infants died before their first birthday. Only half of all children survived to the age of 10, which means the average family buried half their children when they were still little, and the children died at home, not sheltered away from our hearts and our eyes. Life for our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is. And yet, he says, we have innumerable diaries and journals and historical documents that reveal that they took hardship and grief in far better stride than we do. Uh, let me consider another example. Dr. Paul Brand uh, was one of the pioneering uh, doctors of orthopedic surgery. And he spent the first half of his career in India, and then he moved to the United States and spent the second half of his career. And he wrote this of his career at the end of his career. He said, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. His patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. As you dig deeper, 
you'll find that other cultures tend to see suffering, despite its painfulness, to be important means of achieving your purpose in life. But not in our modern Western world. We have a very different approach. And if we Christians are not careful, we can slowly imbibe, we can slowly drink the Kool-Aid of the culture, which is that all suffering is bad and must be avoided and must be fled from. Peter sees things quite clearly. And that's why he keeps coming back to this topic of suffering, even when we've been long done and ready to move on. And he learned this idea, friends, from Jesus. Because it was not it Jesus who said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Peter writes that not only should his readers not be surprised by the literally fiery trial that they are enduring, but they're commanded to rejoice because they are, uh, he says, participating in the sufferings of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the larger context of this section, Peter is speaking specifically about the suffering we will endure for being Christians. He goes on to speak about this in verse 16. But while this passage is clear that uh, Peter's primarily addressing Christian suffering for being Christians, so persecution, like what Jessica Bates is dealing with, now there's elsewhere. The Bible also makes it clear that all suffering should ultimately cause us to have hearts of rejoicing in God. So James 1-2, famously, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or Paul, in Romans 3, 5, uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5, we also glory in our sufferings. When was the last time you gloried in your sufferings? But Paul says we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Dear friends, as those united to Christ by his sufferings, there is a sense that all of our sufferings are a sharing in his suffering in that they, like his, prepare us for glory. All of our suffering prepares us to meet Christ. Some of it will be suffering for being a Christian like Jessica Bates, and others will suffer various other things. But Peter gives us the purpose clause. Did you catch the purpose clause there in verse 13? Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that for this purpose you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Maybe think about it this way. Is, have you ever been so unprepared for something when it happened, you just couldn't quite take it in? I think there's been times I've seen magnificent landscapes and just had to stop and pull over on the side of the road and go, I just couldn't drive by any longer, right? Something happens. That's what Peter's basically saying here. It's, friends, you have to understand, we need preparation before we behold the glory of God. And part of that preparation is suffering. And then he goes on to explain he says the reason, that the purpose then, is that we would be prepared. And then the, uh, verse 14 in the NIV uh, says, if you're insulted, really it's, it's for, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, for this reason, you are blessed. Why? Well, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is, the Holy Spirit is a down payment of that future glory. He's a taste of the reality we will one day have. Go read Ephesians 1, 12 through 14 to learn more about that. So Christian, I hope you see how the Bible's treatment of this theme of suffering is meant to prepare us. It's meant to be a prophylactic. 
It's meant to prevent us from being overcome and undone by when suffering comes. Contrary to the Western cultural idea that tries to just be quiet and avoid it and hide it and ignore it, uh, no, the Bible would have us press into thinking about suffering, especially before we suffer. So that instead, when we hear stories of Jessica Bates, our first response can be is, Father, be glorified in that situation. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And there is, there's a reason why we should pray for her to win. Oh, yes, of course. But that gut reaction that we have, does it first respond in trusting God? If not, suffering would have us prepare for that. And practically then, while we pray for her and her situation, and we should be thankful for the ADF and similar organizations, we need to grow some muscle memory regarding this idea of suffering. Because, friends, more news stories are going to come that are appalling. And how do we react at a gut level? We need to develop these types of things of considering it all joy or rejoicing. Now, of course, there's many times we're going to fail in this knee-jerk reaction. And that's why this theme of suffering is repeated again and again. To keep, like, taking us back to the gym and developing those muscles so we get this muscle memory. That even when hard things and suffering happen, we can rejoice because God is in control. Suffering has to come before and in preparation for glory. That's Peter's point. And that's what he says, suffering as testing. Which brings us to our second point. So we've seen suffering is, is testing and preparatory. And now we'll see suffering as judgment. Look at verses 15 through 17. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, though we might, again, charge Peter with beating the same old drum as we've said, Peter's pressing on and giving us a slightly different anger, angle now on how to deal with this. Christians must be entirely focused on ensuring their suffering is not the result of our sin. He said that over and over again in this letter. And as I've said, this flies in the face of our modern world, which talks about victim blaming. And Peter, the first thing he does when he is basically saying when you suffer is, was it because you sinned? Now, don't get me wrong, we need to be careful and we need to be wise in how we engage victims. Yes, that's not the point at all. But no, Peter is, again, he's developing muscle memory. He's trying to get us to, to have this instinctive move to say, is, is suffering, was it because I did something foolish? Was I a, you, you read the first three and you're like, oh, I'm definitely not a murderer or you know, a criminal, but a meddler? Uh, you love how the apostles tend to do that uh, in, in one of Paul's lists about things. You know, a murderer, an adulterer, or if you're disrespectful to your parents. Uh, those things kind of are meant to grab you and snap you back from saying, no, all sin is sin before a holy God. But here, what he, he says for us is that basically we're not to be fruit inspectors in each other's lives, no. But we are to be those who suffer as Christians and not be ashamed. So that's his, his point here is, if your sin has brought about suffering, then you should be ashamed because sin should make us ashamed. So in other words, when suffering takes place, you should be those who are not ashamed because you know you have a clear conscience before God. You, you know that this was not something that was brought about by your sinfulness. 
And so because you're not ashamed, you are able to, verse 16, praise God that you bear his name. That is the name of a Christian. Now, as often the case down through the years, the, the title Christian was not taken by Christians themselves. It was their opposition that named them that, as t- typically tends to be the case. But they kept that name, and they should, because it's a wonderful little name. C.S. Lewis kind of renders it as little Christs. We're little Christs who are supposed to be imaging him back to the world. And so much of the slander that Christians receive, being called bigots as we heard earlier, Peter says we're to receive that slander, that verbal abuse, and we're to praise God. Now that seems a weird thing to say, but Peter is speaking from his own experience. Uh, In Acts chapter 5, you read uh, the first time that the Christians were beating for claiming the name of Jesus and teaching in his name. Maybe you remember the scene. Peter and the apostles are there teaching in the temple and they're preaching, and many people are getting healed. And the Sadducees and some of their associates are just filled with jealousy because this new rival group, it seems to be, rising up. And so they have them arrested and thrown in prison. But, and you've got to love God's sense of humor, uh, God sends an angel to let them out. And the angel lets them out and opens the gates, and he says, the first thing you're to do is go back and keep preaching. And so they do. They go back to the temple, and they keep preaching. And the Sadducees show up, and they're sitting there preaching. And they look at the guards, what's wrong with you? We told you to arrest these men. They go back into the jail, and sure enough, the jail's locked up tight. It's just Peter and the boys aren't there. They're preaching. And so they arrest them a second time in response to their preaching. And in Acts 5, we read about how they are beaten and then let go. And when they get back, in 5, 41 and 42, we read this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So Christians are those who proclaim Christ even when the world around them attacks them for doing so. That's how Peter knows that we can praise God. We can rejoice even in suffering. That we can rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffering for the name of Jesus. Now for those of us who live in America, such stories are nice, like the one from Acts 5, but it seems so foreign to us. But I mean, go read some more about Jessica Bates. She is trusting God. And it's a beautiful thing when you see those types of stories. But there's so much that we can learn in this area, in particular from our brothers and sisters around the world, which is part of why I prayed for those in Iran who were recently arrested. And one of the things you'll find as you engage with much thought from other parts of the world where Christians are persecuted more actively is that oftentimes they tell us to pray not for their suffering to end, but they tell us to pray that their suffering would lead to sanctification. They say, pray for us to remain strong. Eh, don't, their first request isn't that the suffering would go away. I just don't think most of us in America are wired that way. I think our default mode is make it stop. But that's not what Peter has says here, is it? No. Peter says, rejoice. Praise God. Now again, we, we, we don't need any false dichotomies here. We can and should pray for governing leaders to rule in such a way where God's people can live peaceful and quiet lives. Paul tells Timothy to do that very thing. But I think we should admit that so strong is our default tendency to cry out for injustice and to try and make things stop that maybe we have hindered some of our sanctification and lessons to be learned from pressing on and enduring a little longer in suffering, of learning to rejoice when suffering comes. 
So again, while we dare not overcorrect, we can both pray for governments that they would lead and foster cultures and and areas where God's people can be free to worship him, yes and amen, but we also need to grow in that muscle memory of learning how to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And that's why Peter grounds verse 16 in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Now that's an interesting verse. Peter says, praise God for suffering. Why? Because suffering is God's means of judging and cleansing. First, his church. Uh, Now it says the, the household of God. But it's interesting, that, that phrase is drawn from the Old Testament. It is almost always used of the temple. In particular, we might even just translate this as judgment always begins with God's temple. And it seems like Peter is actually alluding to a, a few passages in the Old Testament. One of them is Zechariah 13, 9. In Zechariah 13, we read of this coming day of judgment. And it's the famous passage that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And the Gospels tell us that that's clearly speaking of Jesus, the shepherd who was struck and the sheep were scattered. But Zechariah goes on to say that two-thirds of the sheep will die and they will perish in judgment. And the final third, they will be made to walk through deep refining. It says, I will put them into the fire to refine them as silver. They will be tested as gold and then they will call upon the name of the Lord. It seems Peter's drawing on that language to help us to see as Christians now in local churches who are the temple of God are those who are going through the refining fire. And that's why this is also an allusion to Malachi 3. I remember Malachi 3 speaks of this messenger who will come before the Lord. And the Gospels tell us that was John the Baptist. In partial fulfillment, he came and prepared the way of the Lord. But then Malachi continues uh, the, the, the messenger becomes also the, the second messenger, almost said it is, and he will come as a refiner with the refiner's fire. Says he will sit like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Why would Peter allude to this text here? Well, remember, two chapters ago, in chapter 2, who did Peter say that we, Christians in local churches, are? We're priests. We're a kingdom of priests. We're the Levites in that sense. So what if Peter is drawing from this language to say that we are those who are being refined through suffering as part of God's judging of his temple and his priests so that we can rightly offer sacrifices of praise to God with our lives? I think that's what Peter's doing. That's why Peter says, now is the time for judgment. In other words, every time the church or God's people suffer It is refining us, preparing us. Uh, Now, one level, the church has suffered ultimately in Jesus because he has taken the wrath of God against our sins. It was he who declared us just. He declared us righteous. He's the true temple, and we are those who are mortared to him and each other, as Peter said in chapter 2. And so as the spiritually restored Israel, Peter sees us that we're that temple and kingdom of priests being refined and purified through this judgment that has come upon us through our sharing in the sufferings of Christ, which prepare us for glory, as we've already seen. So Peter then is making this contrast, saying if the sufferings Christians endure now are a refining judgment upon us who have already been declared righteous in Christ, the second half of the verse says, how much more awful will that judgment be 
upon those who do not obey the gospel of God. So, so on the one hand, he's saying we're, we're those Christians who have been judged in Christ, and yet we are experiencing this purifying, refining judgment. But those who have not been judged in Christ, those who have to bear that judgment themselves, how much more awful is that? And the difficulty, though, is maybe you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. Uh, this idea of judgment is very offensive. And yet, I would say there's a great dissonance in our modern culture on this topic of judgment. Because see, on the one hand, we are shaped by such radical individualism that we can be quick to declare that no one gets to judge me. Who do you think you are to tell me what is right and wrong? I get to decide what is right and wrong in my life. I'm, I'm sure all of us have heard those type of sentiments. Maybe we've even uttered them ourselves. But yet, on the other hand, our modern culture has this kind of hyper-justice that's going on. It's constantly seeking to police everything people say and do. I mean, we heard in the intro the woman saying, you know, those bigoted Christians thumping their Bible. Uh, the, the, the irony is this. On the one hand, she wants no standard of judgment outside of herself, but she wants the strictest judgment for anybody who doesn't agree with herself. Don't you notice what that means? That means that she's essentially claiming to take God's place. Uh, along these lines, uh, a woman once said to a pastor, you know, I, I don't like this idea of God being a judge. It's offensive. And the pastor responded and said, well, I'm curious, why aren't you offended by the fact that God is forgiving? And she was dumbfounded by it. Well, why would the idea of forgiving be offensive? And he explains, well, well ma'am, see, in, in traditional cultures, it's actually unthinkable that somebody would turn the other cheek. That's what's so strange elsewhere. It's the idea of God being a forgiving God that is totally offensive. How could you forgive this person who has done such things? That's what offends them. And so he says, don't you see that actually you have a very Western view? It's actually a very ethnocentric view. If you're only offended by God's judgment and not also by his forgiveness. See, I've never met somebody who thinks that murderous dictators should not be judged. And they should just be allowed to live happily ever after. See, friends, we all want judgment, but again, we want it on our terms. We want to be the arbiter of good and evil, or to use the Bible's categories, as I've already said, we want to be God, which is why all sin is the de-godding of God. It is commanding he come off his throne, and we ascend the steps so that we can determine what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is just. And following Peter, he would have us to obey the gospel of God which is this. What is the gospel of God? Well, the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the son of God who took on flesh to live and die for sinners who have spent their lives trying to de-God God and pull him from his throne. To obey the gospel of God then begins by seeing our sin as cosmic treason, as, as sinning against the creator and king of the universe. See, we have to see the bad news first, that we are all those who deserve judgment for how we've treated our maker. And yet the good news is that all those who turn and repent and trust in Jesus, who repent of seeking to de-king him, well, we will find him to be an all-sufficient savior. But, Peter says, those who do not obey him, those who do not obey the gospel of God, well, then they will stand before the just judge. See, friends, either our sins are punished in Jesus when he takes the wrath of God for our sin, or they'll be meted out upon us one day. So friend, if you are not a Christian, I would plead with you to obey the gospel of God. 
If you would like to know more about what that would look like, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. But we have seen suffering is testing that prepares us and refines us. We've seen suffering as judgment, which refines us and prepares us. But finally, we come to our last point, suffering as God's will. Look at verses 18 and 19. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, verse 18 restates what we've just been seeing in proverbial form. Uh, it's from Proverbs eleven thirty-one. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. And I, I broke it out to put on this point because we need to understand in the flow of Peter's argument that he's been explaining how part of the preparation for glory that we will have one day requires suffering. And so, before our final suffering, we will endure many fiery trials And hence, what he's saying is, the road to final salvation is a hard road. That's what he means there. Like, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Uh, The point is not that it's hard for God to save. Uh, Yes, it was hard, and that Jesus took on flesh and lived and died for our salvation. Yes, but here he's speaking of the, the life of salvation it was, from here to final judgment. And that brings up a number of practical points for us to consider. Because see, depending upon the church tradition you grew up in, Uh, Maybe you were taught this idea that salvation was easy. I mean, you you pray a prayer to Jesus, you ask him to come into your heart, and then you're saved. That's it. You You begin to experience the abundant life. Well, that idea of salvation being easy, this the Christian life is wonderful. Of course, that's a very brash way, a crass way to put it. Uh, But it is a popular thing that has made its rounds down through the centuries. I could go through almost every couple hundred years of church history and find a a version of this argument that has been peddled. But I'll illustrate this with a more recent one. In the 1980s, there was this movement called the Free Grace Movement. And the advocates argued that turning from sin was actually a kind of works righteousness. So so the act of repenting and turning from sin was, was a work that we were doing, and therefore that's not how you got saved. You got saved by mere assent. By bare faith alone, as he said. Now, interestingly, that, that view developed out of people who had taken Schofield Reference Bible's notes and some other people in that vein, and they developed this idea of free grace theology. And practically, this led to the idea that someone can be a Christian, and they can claim to be someone of faith, and yet remain completely or almost completely unchanged. Having faith in Jesus was just a one-time thing. Yep, I trust in Jesus. My personal experience of this was my dad. Um, I've said many times my dad lived a rough life. He died of a drug overdose. And I remember talking to him and evangelizing him for the last, I don't know, 10 years of his life. And at one point he said, Trevor, I had a faith experience. And I said, Dad, I have had all sorts of experiences. I've had a heartburn experience. But that doesn't redefine me or change me. A faith experience is nothing without repentance. You see, when this controversy kicked up of the free grace movement, J.I. Packer, always witty and sharp, wrote about it. He said, If ten years ago you would have told me that I would live to see literate evangelicals, some with doctorates and a seminary teaching record, arguing for the reality of an eternal salvation, divinely guaranteed, that may have in it no repentance, no discipleship, no behavioral change, no practical acknowledgement of Christ as Lord of one's life, and no perseverance in faith, I would have told you you were out of your mind. Stark starring bonkers is the British phrase I would have used. 
Well, that's what Peter is saying, the same thing. His friends, the journey from now until the end is hard. It is hard for the righteous to be saved because it is a long road of trials and suffering that are seeking to refine us as gold in the fire, to purge away the dross. And that's why he's been belaboring this discussion. See, those who've been saved must expect the refining judgment of suffering in this life to prepare them for glory, is what we've said. But, again, if those who saved, are saved suffer so much in this life, Peter asks, how much worse for those who do not believe? In other words, Peter is charging his readers in times of suffering, when you're in the throes of dark trial, to actually use the final judgment as a means for how you press on in suffering today. Do you see how his argument works? What he's saying is, friend, if you think right now the hard part of your salvation is hard, consider the judgment of a just and holy God and allow that to bring you back and say, oh no, Lord, this is for a moment, but eternity is a long time. That's what he's saying. So for those who do not obey the gospel, there is a far greater judgment. And so that is a means that God uses to remind us. In total opposition to the live your best life now books then, Peter says that life now will be filled with sorrow. But there's a far more unthinkable, unimaginable sorrow for those who do not continue to look to Christ. Practically, Peter's calling for us to be those people who think about the final judgment, not to hide from it, to meditate on it, so that we would be those who are strengthened to press on. Do you hear how his question just lingers? What will become of the ungodly? That question's meant to linger. Thoughts of final judgment are meant to linger, which is perhaps why Jesus taught on hell more than anyone else. It is a means of bringing about change. The problem is we live in a world that is hell-bent, no pun intended, on refusing to think about death and judgment. So we Christians need to be careful that that cultural spirit of avoiding thoughts of the end don't seep into our lives. Well, that's verse 18. Verse 19, and I said, is really, this is why the last point is labeled suffering as God's will, because that's precisely what the verse says. Read it again, verse 19. So then, he is now drawing to conclusion everything he's argued in 12 through 13. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You know, Sam's prayer was exactly right. God is sovereign over all things. Shriner puts it well, all suffering passes through his hands. Nothing strikes the believer apart from God's loving, sovereign control. But why Peter brings this back up again, and if you actually look closely, this is the fourth time Peter has said that God is sovereign over our suffering as well. But why he brings it up again at this point is important. See, right here, Peter brings this point up. Because I've been saying Peter's arguing suffering as Christians is necessary preparation for our future glory. And so here, Peter's showing us how God's sovereignty over suffering is specifically used by God to prepare us for glory. That is why we must commit ourselves to a faithful creator. Creator is sovereign. He is in control over all things. And he is faithful. He is using all things for the good. So this is Peter teaching the exact same thing Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know 
that for those who love God, he causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I would note, God cannot fail to make his people end up in the image of his son. And Peter's saying he uses his sufferings to do it. In order that, Paul continues, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn of many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. That is in the past tense. Our glorification is already a reality in Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter has been walking the same path in this letter. And that's why he opened by declaring that God causes his people to be born again. Firstborn, Jesus, with many brethren, many brothers and sisters, us, who are being shaped and, and made ready through the fiery trials. We are being refined. So friends, now do you see why we must not be surprised at the trials and tribulations of this life? Do you see why we can rejoice and why we're blessed when we suffer as Christians? Well, Peter's saying, because our suffering is God's plan and means of preparing us for the glory that we will have with Jesus on the last day. Or as I've been arguing, suffering as Christians is a necessary preparation for future glory. So let us rejoice even in our sufferings. And one of the greatest living examples of this in our life is Joni, actually it's Johnny, I was corrected, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was named after her father, John. She was made a quadriplegic from diving accident at the age of 17. And she has written extensively and wisely on this topic of human suffering. And we'll close with one of the stories she, or one of the comments she makes in one of her pamphlets. She says this, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair into heaven. She says, now I know that's not theologically correct. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then, in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hand. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the thing is, the weaker I got in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. See, friends, that is what Peter's getting at. So, friends, for you today who are in deep valleys of suffering, and I know some of you are, I know right now, looking at the bruising, you don't see the blessing. But press on. That's Peter's point. Because it is precisely why God has you here this morning to remind you that your faithful creator, the one who spoke the heavens into existence, who upholds and sustains all things by the word of his hand, is holding you too. So may we rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. Even when it pushes us down roads that we no longer want to walk because you know better for us. So Lord, would you help us to even rejoice in the midst of the sufferings of this life? 
that you would prepare us for glory. And we would learn to trust you in that work. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.